Hello, friends, and welcome back to Bet On You Radio, where every episode we have a special guest sharing amazing stories so we can give you the strategies and tools you need to bet on yourself and win. I am Ben Whiting here with Angie Morgan Witkowski. And Angie, how's your week been? Oh my gosh, it was so great. I was at the airport last night and guess who I ran into? Who'd you run into? Well, you, of course. I mean, yes, I was there at the airport too. <laughs> no, it's kind of funny. You know, we were both coming back on a Sunday night. I was actually with my son. We went to a Pistons game on one day. We love basketball. Then we went to my college, University of Michigan Wolverines. We beat the Ohio State Buckeyes. You don't even, I, I appreciate, I a, you don't even know who I'm talking about. I have about. a degree in theater. <laughs> <laughs> but you were headed, and I saw my cousin there. It was like kind of like this little party. I was so happy to see so many friendly faces. Then you come, where were you coming back from? I was coming from Omaha, Nebraska, where right. I was doing a keynote for a big client there. And actually, I wanted to tell you this this week because we're always trying to think of like ways we can give value to you, the listeners. Mm -hmm. And what happened is, you know, I was listening to the CEO talk because I always listen to everyone who speaks before me just to give my speech a little context. And the CEO said something incredible. He said, you know, these past couple months, we've been talking a lot about growing and getting bigger. And I want to stop doing that. And I was like, oh, where's this going? This is not what you hear a lot of people saying. No, say. especially in business, right? Especially in business. He said, rather than think about getting bigger, I want to talk about how we can get better. So our customers demand that we get bigger. So the idea of scaling and getting bigger, he didn't want that to be his choice. He wanted that to be everyone else's choice because of the quality of the work that his company put out there. And I was just thinking, oh my gosh, where else in my life can I apply this mindset? And I believe you said you were working at an offsite as well where something similar happened. Yeah, I was uh, actually facilitating a retreat with this wonderful small consultancy. I'll say small, there's about 60 people recently had merged together. And they were talking about this concept too of let's get healthy. Let's bring our two cultures together. Let's define our values and let, let's let those be the thing that helps us as we grow and scale. But before we grow and scale, let's just get right with ourselves. Let's get to know each other. Let's focus on relationships. And I feel like there's so many personal uh, metaphors in there for me. <laughs> right. Of course, I'm not trying to grow. I'm not trying to get bigger. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but I'm always looking to get better. And actually, it reminds me of our guest who we're going to have today, who is an independent film artist. And what I really love about his, you know, you think about filmmakers and you hear a lot of people who are in the entertainment world, they want to get the biggest salaries, you know, the biggest productions. What I love about our guests, it's like, no, no, no. It's not about the external praise or the trappings of success. It's really about the craft. It's about the story. It's about the camaraderie. It's not about the money. Which is, to me, just enlightening because I think it there's is. so much there and richness there that we can all take inspiration you know, from. It's so great. In Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, someone once asked him, what is the secret to success? And he knew what they wanted. They wanted some answer about how to get an agent or what font to use on their business card. Mm -hmm. But the answer he gave them is the secret to success is you have to be so good at what you do that people can't ignore you. You have to be locked into your craft. And our guest today, Rich Brower, is someone who I sincerely believe is locked into his craft. And I cannot wait because I know there are so many ways that being a leader on a movie set, dealing with relationships, dealing with a goal, just parallels with so many other things in life. And I cannot wait to dive into that with Rich here today. Well, let's dive in with Rich. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> 
Rich Brower has worked with so many people you've heard of. The History Channel, 20th Century Fox, Animal Planet, Pure Michigan. He's worked on The Simpsons. He's done movies like Escanaba in the Moonlight. He's friends with Ernest Borgnine and Julie Kavner, and we have him in the studio today, and I cannot wait to get into this conversation. Rich, here's the first thing. I was trying to look up your CV and look up all the things that you have done, and it was ridiculously <laughs> difficult to find these things. But I, you know, using my ways, contacted people who had worked with you, and something they all said across the board is that Rich has no ego. Is that something you aim for? Like, because your ego is so big, you try to hide it? Or is it something that you actually don't have? Uh, you, by the way, thanks for being uh, letting me be here. Uh, I love talking to you guys and sharing uh, these pearls of wisdom that <laughs> may come out or not. Um, you know, the reason that maybe you can't find me that easily is that I don't have a marketing brain. I don't really think of it like that. Uh, almost every job I get, virtually everything I do is word of mouth. And so it's not like I'm broadcasting out all the services that I could do for people or whatever, because there's so much competition in that world of, of chatter mm -hmm. and, and with resumes and all this stuff, it's like, it could, it it could be real or it could be made up, made up, you know? And so I've kind of just like, I don't know how many decades ago, but just decided that, uh, yeah, I'll put a website together and it may update the thing once every couple of years. Um, and, uh, and it's, and, and, and I've got to beg somebody to help me do that. So <laughs> I, so if you backpedal all that and, and talk about ego, I, there's, there's a lot to be said about just being a craftsman and just doing, doing what you like to do and what you love to do and what you're good at and, and be nice to people. And, and then the rest just sort of falls, falls into place. And that's sort of kind of the short answer on that, I suppose. I yeah. love that formula. Just be a craftsman, Ben. By the way, you didn't mention that he's actually friends with you too. Of yeah. all those amazing people, Rich, and you are friends with Ben Whiting. Wow. Yeah, and that proves that I have no ego whatsoever. <laughs> uh, um, but oh. no, no, seriously. Yeah, Ben and I have known each other a long time, and um, and he's been in helpful on a number of projects. We've worked on a bunch yeah. of projects together, and that's cool. Um, so I'm very comfortable being here and, and sharing this stuff. Um, I love it. Um, but, I, but I also think that this whole ego thing, I've worked with a lot of actors that have different gauges when it comes to ego, and, and I, by the way, I don't even think about this, really. But since you guys are digging it up, uh, I'll think about it now, <laughs> I guess. But it's like I've, I've witnessed some actors who are like, oh, you, know, uh, you know, we all hear jokes about the green M&Ms or the, you know, whatever. And it's like um, I've, I've witnessed actors that are, that are, or even people in this industry that tend to be uh, driven by some positioning that they want to achieve. Like they want to create this uh, aura of professional, I don't even know, I was gonna say professionalism, but it's like this aura of uh, character or importance that if they're doing that, it's probably not deserved. I always think about that. I would say it's the brand, but it's an artificial brand because it it, it's manufactured based on popularity perceptions yeah. and what you kind of want to stand for. But if it's not 
who it is on the inside. Right. People can see right through it. Let me give you an example. Uh, yeah. Ben mentioned Ernest Borgnine, who's passed away sadly now uh, at age 96. Um, but I got to direct him four different times. And, Amazing. Um, I love this man. And he and I shared, even though we, we were functionally two generations apart, uh, we had the same sense of humor. I mean, we 100% locked, connected, and it was great. I could call him at his house and talk to him about a project, and he would go, well, when do you want to do it? You know, just get me. And, and I mentioned to him a number of times, why, how is it that uh, at your age, you still have this passion for, for acting? And, and, I, and I added to that, I know a lot of people that are younger, a lot younger than you that have already retired mm-hmm. and hung it up, you know, and how come, what's with you? And he, in his own way, goes, well, I'm doing my Borgnine imitation now. Thank you. Um, he, goes, uh, he goes, well, as long as there's guys like you around to, make, to pay me to make a damn fool out of myself, <laughs> why would I give that up? And that's kind of, <laughs> but that's, the, again, that's about as far as he gave that stuff any thought. He would just, he just loves it. And what's he going to do if he doesn't act? You know, he loves his stuff. Um, but also then it translates to how does he behave in the field? Like, uh, he and I would eat at restaurants all the time when we're working on, on projects. And I, he'd, be and I, he'd be sitting there drinking red wine and eating red cabbage. He'd love both of those. And somebody would come up because he's incredibly recognizable. Mm-hmm. And people would come up and just stand there and go, Mr. Ernst Borgnine? And he'd go, in the flesh, you know. And, you know, could I get an autograph, you know, or something? And, and uh, he'd stand up and he'd go, absolutely. In fact, why don't you take a picture too? And so somebody would be like, oh, could I? You know, and they'd take this picture. And all this would happen, and he'd sit back down. And this is where the reality that could happen. Does he roll his eyes when that person is gone? Does he roll his eyes and look at me and just go, brother? Does he do that? Or does he just continue eating and, and honestly enjoyed it? Enjoyed that moment of recognition and that man enjoyed that moment of recognition and in fact would add that's the reason i get to do what i do and i'm never going to forget that that. i'm getting goosebumps even saying i know and i'll tell you why and what's really interesting about this is when i first worked with him uh well now it's been almost 25 years ago um i had a bunch of graduates from interlochen academy interlochen arts academy uh, theater graduates people like seth bernard i didn't realize that he was such a great musician at the time. But I worked with Seth uh, when he graduated from high school and three others from Interlochen, uh, all seniors that I auditioned for this movie that were going to play opposite Ernest Borgnine. And they didn't know any of that. But I was looking for these characters to be in this movie. It's called The Lost Treasure of Sawtooth Island is the movie. And these young people got to work with Academy Award winner Ernest Borgnine that has the, the characteristics that I just described. The lesson that, that that man, by his actions, mentored these four students from Interlochen in a way that you cannot learn this stuff in school. You cannot learn how to behave and how to be gracious. You learn technique, you learn blah, 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 you, you pass the tests, you, how do you behave in, in the real world? How do you behave when you're inter, inter working with other crew members or cast members? How do you behave? How do you be 
a good role model? How do you how do you behave when you're you you guys started with this ego thing? It's like that maybe jumps in, and when these young guys, including Seth, watched Borgnine for the whole movie and how he behaved, and they used that as an example. And I know that for a fact that all the four of those people today are better at what they do because of that time that they spent with Ernest Borgnine. And Ernest Borgnine is like a flagship for me when it comes to graciousness and friendship and love and uh, skill and homework. Do your homework. It's okay. Think it, isn't, is it isn't as easy as it looks. Angie, I don't know about you, but I am just getting goosebumps at half the every other story Rich is telling us. <laughs> And, you know, I'm just kind of fascinated, too, because where we started when you were talking about, you know, not being a leader who leads with an ego, so putting that aside, you brought up two things, that you're a craftsman and you're nice to people, and that's how you feel that you lead. And then you said because of that, you've had this success. But I like to always go to the origin because, you know, I'm sure when you started, your phone wasn't ringing off the hook. No, like, not at all. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you got into filmmaking and how you got into these amazing opportunities? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I got the bug when I had got out of sixth grade, and I was at the uh, I was in Beulah, just uh, thirty five miles west of here, where my family had a little cottage, and I'd go there in the summertime sometimes. And I had just seen, there was a movie theater downtown called the Crystal Theater. It's mm-hmm. no longer there, sadly. Uh, I watched a movie called uh, The Blue Max with George Pappard and Ursula Andress. And uh, I came out of that theater, uh, and I guess I don't know how old I would have been coming out of sixth grade, but I don't know, what is 12, that, 12 or 13, something? Okay. yeah. So that's how old I was. I came out of that theater not saying what a fantastic film it was, but it was, and I knew it. I came out of that theater with this bolt of lightning that said, I want to, I would love to work on a movie like that. That's, I mean, I can clearly remember this. Uh, and so that, that's when I grabbed the family movie camera and started just playing around. Um, but gradually it worked into, I grew up in Ann Arbor. Um, actually, Ken Burns was in the class ahead of me by the way. And For those people <laughs> yeah. you may not know, can you tell everyone who may not be familiar with Ken Burns? Because he's legend when I make my family movies at yeah. home. <laughs> yes. Ken will never amount to anything, but he, t- <laughs> he, he tries to be a writer. Uh, he, he makes these really uh, sloppy documentaries. You know, and, <laughs> no, no, Ken is a brilliant in every way um, and a, has put kept PBS on the map, basically. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, he's, he's quite remarkable. But, but back then, we were just kids at, in Ann Arbor. And, <clears throat> and so uh, what, was, what happened then as I started making these movies, they got more and more uh, complicated. I was the first person for sure in Ann Arbor to have sound on film in Super 8. It was, I literally glued magnetic tape on the non-sprocketed side of Super 8 film. Ah. <laughs> I'm not kidding you, man. That's commitment. And it's insane. And, um, <laughs> and that so, was just an idea you had, just like, uh, this should work? I cobbled, man. I was always cobbling. Uh, you know, kind of like if Ken Burns is a good writer, I'm, I'm kind of the guy, if you needed something welded mm-hmm. or built, you know, maybe you talk to me, not him. He, but it was like that. And um, so gradually... Um, the movies I was making by the time I got like in 10th grade were hour long Westerns with sound on film. You know, there's still 
high school movies, but at least the sound was there. And it was complicated. This was not easy. This was not like computers today. I mean, this was seriously expensive and complicated stuff. And um, <clears throat> I had a paper out at the time, 100, 102 customers. And so I slept newspapers all over the place. And that's where I made the, the that's where I, that's how I fed this habit that I was <laughs> developing. Your funding source. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then by little by little, I got more into 16 millimeter film. Uh, oh, I made a space movie in there too called The Venus Flight Trap. Which I thought was a good title. I think it's a great but, title. Um, and it, you know, <laughs> built a set and made an hour-long space movie, which I'll never show anybody any of, of these movies. <laughs> so don't even ask. Um, but tons of movies. Uh, and then when uh, high school was evolving more, uh, I ended up in a free school uh, part of Ann Arbor. Well, let's see. I got to think how this through. Ann Arbor school board had seen a movie called the called Billy Jack back then. It was about this judo-kicking uh, ex-Marine who defended this free school, a bunch of hippies up on a hill kind of movie. It's a cool movie. Um, anyway, the Ann Arbor School Board saw that and thought, hey, we should have a school. We should have a free school like that. <laughs> so it was a lottery to get in. I, made, I got in, and I, all I did my senior year was make movies. And they were all 16 millimeter by then. And I had my own processor in the basement at my house underneath my dad's and mom's steps. Oh. I had rigged this processor, so I was I would shoot something in the morning, and process it, and take it back to school at lunchtime. I mean, it was literally unheard of to be able to do that quick. There was no video then. It was not, it was like you shoot something and you send it somewhere, and a week and a half later you could maybe get it back. This was the same day. I would literally to dry it. I would um, staple it to a tree, a hundred foot rolls, staple it to a tree over here, and I staple it to a tree over there. And let it let the wind flap with it, dry it, because it had to get dry. <laughs> oh, and man. and then I'd take a spool and, and roll it up, and then project it. Rich, oh, so you? I mean, I hear this. You know, you have been making films since <laughs> since you were in middle school. It sounds since, like since Moses. Since was, since Moses, we'll say that. Yes, <laughs> just a long time ago. Yeah. A long yeah. time ago. What? Well, now, surely at some point, we know when you're in the throes of a movie and things are complicated, things come you don't expect, you get. I have to feel a little burnt out. Is is that ever happened to you? And how do you deal with it? Uh, no, it never has happened. Uh, in fact, we start shooting on a whole other movie in two days from now. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I'm yeah, I got to answer the phone once in a while to do stuff, but um, it's all set. So two days from now, uh, we got a whole crew rolling in uh, doing an exterior nights blizzard um, for the next week, and it's very complicated. But even that, I'm like. I have this peacefulness about it that is like, I've done everything I can do to set it up and I've got a good crew and, uh, and it's all, all there. And so to kind of the point of that is that I, if something goes wrong and it surely will, nobody gets into this business because they're afraid of trouble. Okay. That's a, like a huge point. Uh, if you're interested in if you if you just think it's all easy and you watch all these behind the scenes of movies being made and go oh that sounds cool they had a camera and they put on a dolly and it went over here and that actor oh I know that actor that's I could do that it's like that is so uh, <laughs> by the time you're actually shooting the movie you've already invested a year and a half in it and in boring boardrooms and begging money for I mean it's like the the treachery of what potential treachery of the pre-production is immense compared to the actual shoot. 
The shoot is the easy part. It's almost like the reward for doing the rest of the job yeah. well. Well, it's, it's a reward, it's... yeah, and, and exactly. And it's like that's when, that's when the camaraderie kicks in too, which is another major reason I do this stuff, uh, is, is the ability to hang out with, with people that I, I enjoy working with. And, and we're all on the same team, and we all want the same thing. Everybody has their own kind of department, but we're all... We're all here to help each help each other. You know, Angie and I were talking the other day about a speaker we like who always says that he believes people's biggest problem in general is they think they shouldn't have any. That's right. <laughs> when that's just not how the no, world that's works. No, that's a really good point. And, and there is n- it's almost nonstop. Nonstop problems. Problems. Right. <laughs> uh, when we were doing Frozen Stupid 2 and we had this actor named Ben Whiting uh, <laughs> playing the part of a uh, sheriff, a Marine Patrol guy. Well, that morning... Uh, if, if you recall, this is shot over in Roscommon County. Yeah, I know um, where that is. Yeah, and uh, I had made arrangements with the sheriff patrol boat to show up and, and let us use that for a half a day. That morning, it was so foggy <laughs> you that you could see. not see the front of your car. And I was on, as I'm, dri- as I'm driving to the location at the north end of Houghton Lake, um, or whatever end that is. I don't remember the directions now. But on the other end of Houghton Lake, I called the sheriff's department and I talked to the receptionist and she goes, oh, that was today? <laughs> now, <laughs> now, this was booked months, maybe too far in advance, perhaps. But it was, oh, that was today? And I went, <laughs> I about, you know, threw up a little bit, a little bit, even, <laughs> even me, because I needed that boat. Right. What, how am I going to do this? The entire scene it relies on, on that. And, uh, and I go, uh, you, you're just messing with me, right? And she goes, no, well, you just need to talk to the Marine guy. And I go, well, okay, well, we're, can, you, can you call him and have him call me? And let's just, I'm driving to the location. Right. <laughs> I'm going to be there in 10 minutes, and we're going to start shooting, you know. And I, the guy called, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I got that. I'm trying, to get, I'm trying to drive through this fog right now. He's on the boat. He's trying to drive through the fog. I go, okay, well, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being you're going to make it perfectly, 1 being you're going to turn around and go back, where are you at on that? Because I'm screwed if we don't have that boat on that scene. (laughs) It's a major rewrite, and it's a huge gag in the movie. So uh, he goes, no, I'll I'll get there. I'll get there. It's a 10. I'll be there. Just might be a little slower. Mm -hmm. But again, how do you react just to that one little thing was... That's incredible. It's, it's like the amount of anxiety that you could generate within yourself if you react and your own body reacts in a way where you tense all that stuff up and create a create a almost a physical problem for yourself by 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 internalizing that. I just I just have to deal with it. Okay, if that boat's not going to be there, I was already thinking of plan B. I was already thinking of, okay, well, I could probably, there's a marina right nearby, but I could find a boat that I could, as a distant plan B, that you could be riding in that wouldn't maybe be the sheriff boat, but it'd be a, some, we could stick a decal on it or something. <laughs> um, so well, it was, it's kind of like that, you know, where all these things could could be trouble. And it's not like I never get, like, mad but it's it's like i rarely i don't even i would get mad if somebody crashed into my car and i was just parked in a parking lot that would be like really what do you do i mean even you know it's like 
that's the kind of stupid stuff that I might get mad at, but I don't know. You are talking about so many incredible qualities that happen behind the scenes of some of the great films that we've seen. You're talking about like everyone needs to be curious. Everybody needs to manage their emotions so they can be most present. But you said something a little earlier I want to circle back to is that this never gets old for you. I would love to hear what keeps you inspired. Can you share like two or three things that keep you inspired as a filmmaker? Um, okay. Well, I, I guess the things that uh, rattle around first are that I do I do love telling stories, so so you know many people that are that maybe hang around me a bunch they hear maybe the same story over and over again and there's sometimes a little eye rolling, but I just ignore those guys because the person I'm really telling the story is right in front of me, and you guys just shut up for a minute and just quit <laughs> complaining and just listen to this one because it's going to be exactly the same story. Uh, probably, but it's colorful, and I do like, I love telling stories, and uh, I can write well enough to put it on paper so that when I do have actors together, we can get in a room and and do the collaborative part of this thing. So initially, it's like it's just in my own head, but then so that's number one is is I like telling I love telling stories. Yeah. Secondly, the collaboration is huge for me. Once I have a group of people together that are trusting that I've created a story that makes sense, and they have to trust me at that point um, on that one, then it becomes this real team approach. So, so the second piece of that answer is the collaboration. And I'm not just, that's not a small piece. That is mm-hmm. gigantic because it's, it, it's, the, it's the rubber on the wheel now that really makes this thing be something that it's that I have a tangible product at the end. Uh, otherwise I would just write books or novels or or short stories and just leave them on leave them like that. I like the the visual medium of film. That's my world. I look at stuff where I read a, I read somebody's short story and I go first thing I think of is that would make a good film except that it's too complicated or whatever. So I immediately start to dissect it. So there's, there's a part of your brain that's just always on yeah. in terms of, could that's, this be a story told on That's right, Ben. And, and what's interesting is like uh, in traditional writing schools, they say, don't worry about the logistics of your, um, don't, don't put any constraints on your imagination. Write and make, it, make that story whatever you want it to be. Just don't worry about anything else. And I'm here to tell you that that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> when, it when it comes to, to filmmaking. We're talking about scripts. Right, yeah, of course. Yeah. And the problem is, of course, is that if you have a scene in there where something impossible and it's going to be too expensive to create, it's not going to happen. And all you're going to do is alienate whatever producer is reading this thing because they're going to say, this guy has relied... First of all, I'm dealing in the independent world, Okay. That's where I live, not Hollywood necessarily, where it's like, you know, they have endless money maybe and they blow stuff up and have pink elephants stampeding down Front Street, you know, or whatever. I'm probably going to, instead of that, I would have Ben and some other actor saying, hey, did you see those pink elephants running down Front Street (laughs) yesterday? (laughs) uh, I would put my dog on loan, by the way. Same exact part of the story. Uh Just don't have to show something expensive to do it. So when I write screenplays, Always, I, I write it not constrained from a creative standpoint, but constrained from a production standpoint. Mm-hmm. 
And what it forces you to do, and I, this is really a, another piece of this, and maybe the third piece of this question you've asked, Angie, is that uh, through, through troubles, let's call it, or, or challenges, and you, you access a different part of your brain to overcome that challenge, what happens next is the show got better. And this is like a miracle to me where it was like, ah, doggone it. You know, I'm, that sucks that that guy, uh, I can't use that location maybe because of something. They're, they're whatever. Doggone it, that was a perfect location. Okay, well, I don't have a lot of time to go find another one. All of a sudden we find another one. And it's like, oh, wait a minute. The parking's better. The people are friendlier. The, the blah, 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 blah is all better. It's way better. And had I been stuck with this other one, and if I'd have gotten bent out of shape because I got turned down or whatever, this other location didn't work, all of a sudden it got better. And this is true. And so that's a that's the, kind of the miracle of this stuff is that challenges. If as long as you stay sane during the the gut punch of a trouble, the outcome is. I'm saying a hundred percent chance of it being a better outcome. That feels like life. Doesn't yeah, it, it does. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. It's a, it's like life. And it's like, if you, if you just stop, if it stops you in your tracks and now you just sit on the floor in a fetal position and suck your thumb, that's not going to get it. If you just immediately realize I got to resolve this fairly quickly and we got to find, was there another option? And this is not just on Mac mechanical things like, like locations, but it's storytelling too. It's like, you get in a get in a scene where um, you have something happen, and then later you realize that he wouldn't have said that quite like that then. And then for some reason something kicks into your head and you go, wait a minute, if the phone rang and something happened w- over the phone that created a whole other dimension to this story, but you wouldn't have gotten to that phone call had you not run into this other problem prior mm-hmm. to that. And I'm trying to find metaphors that make this uh, make sense, but it's like through through plot troubles, even. Ah, no, man, that guy can't. That guy can't show up anymore. Uh, he got hurt in a motorcycle accident. We lost him. Well, how do we fix that? You know, okay, we got to. Okay, well, maybe he felt. Maybe he got in a motorcycle accident. Just add it to the story. And he couldn't. I and feel he couldn't, like and he, your brain is trying to mentally solve right. a puzzle. It's Always. like you put like a few pieces <laughs> yeah. together, you take a step back, right. you look at what you got, and right. then you're just still kind of feeding. What are you hearing? Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, I have a question. So we've talked about your motivation in terms of storytelling and just the craft of storytelling and your, that part of your brain you can't turn off. The second part, a collaboration. Now, I've worked on a few movie sets and in some theaters and... There is almost always drama in addition to what's happening in front of the audience. The bad, bad kind of drama. The bad kind of drama, like you know, people arguing. And, I would like the good kind yeah, of drama. Yeah, yeah. And like egos, just kind of. How do you, you know? But I've worked on your set as well, and I never experienced that. What would you say about your set lends itself to everyone working together well and minimizing that drama? You know, I, I, I guess I always go back to where it all started, and that's kind of. I've been involved in all the departments, pretty not acting, but all the mechanic, all the technical departments, and I know what it's like to be a sound man. I know what it's like to be this person or that person. I know what it's like, and I've watched enough good directors work, and and they the the actors want to they want to hear the story, they want to know the story, 
they don't give a crap what camera you're using or what microphones you're hanging over the thing or any of that pre-production stuff or production stuff. They want to know the story. They want to know the where they come from. And that happens to be kind of where I, I also live. And so because I could ex- usually explain where, where characters are coming from, actors become very satisfied and therefore they're calm. And because it's sort of organized, it, it, uh, it kind of makes sense. And it kind of chills them out as well to be confident with where they're going with what they're doing. And I think because you've put your time and energy into making sure you understand everyone's perspective and yeah. everyone's needs, whether they're an actor, a sound guy, a lighting right. guy, right. you know how to communicate with each of them. Right. It's so funny because Angie and I have done consulting, we'll just say for company X, Y, Z. And a lot of the times there's silos. There's like the sales team and the operations. Right. Yeah. And the, all we have to do usually is just let them work in each other's department for a day. And it resolves everything because I think it's we have the, to kind of tell them the to do word it. I'm coming across is empathy. Rich, you say, you know, the way you kind of keep drama and egos like at a low temperature on your sets is just simply by understanding where each person is coming from and putting effort into that. Can you tell us a little bit more about just sure. empathy in general for yeah, getting the job sure. done? Here's here's part of that too is that uh, uh, when I'm casting a movie, I deliberately avoid people that might be a or a hotspot for ego and, and trouble. So it's kind of like 50% of my job as a director is to cast. Mm-hmm. It's not to sit there and micromanage everybody. And it's, that's it's, not just casting actors. That's casting yeah. everyone, everyone you work with. Absolutely. It's uh, a screening, cast. Yeah. Yeah, ca- every, every, Exactly. But it's, it has to do, so it starts way back then. I would probably never get somebody on us on one of my sets that I didn't already know was going to be a f- kind of a friend. Or, um, you know, and at least be g- compassionate and be directable and be all that. But it's like, but again, I'm in a very unusual situation where I just make my own films for the most part. I work on other films for other people all the time. Um, but uh, on my stuff, I get to have my arms around the whole deal. And so I get to control that stuff. When I work on other people's films, I don't have any idea what the cast is. I, you know, it's just their their deal. There's but a, it, but again, if I'm working on somebody else's show, um, and I just came, I just did one in Minnesota. For, I was a director of photography on a movie in Minnesota, and they had everything set up, and I didn't. And I did. I go home at night, and I'm kind of working on my stuff again. You know, so it's it, it's a different thing in my life where I get to work on other people's shows. In, in whatever department that I'm hired for. But then on my own stuff, it's my own deal. Now, you getting back to this empathy thing is like, for me, uh, every single person on the set has an equal value to me. And that really is a kind of a big deal. Uh, and I didn't really notice this, that it was that way. Until uh, when I did Mr. Art Critic on Mackinac Island with Bronson Pinchot, uh, who was a perfect stranger guy. Mm-hmm. He's absolutely... Balky. Balky. Yeah. Is that Balky. right? Is so, that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Thank you for my... So, yeah, Balky. Uh, and that guy is... Uh, oh, man. He was, he's... That guy has 18 cylinders of engine in his brain all the time. That was the year I started drinking coffee. <laughs> I, 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 I never had coffee before and it was like I, I was I think I think I was I was 50 or 55 or something then and oh, uh, wow. I thought and one of my guys walked by with a hot cup of coffee and and I go 
does that stuff work? <laughs> and then he goes, yeah, you want me to get you one? And I go, I guess. I need to keep up with Balky over here, yeah. you know? And Because uh, he's just like, ah, yeah. And um, so that was when I kind of started. But I haven't gotten addicted or anything, but I've, I have I did it. But the point on all that was that Balky slash Bronson Pinchow mm-hmm. observed that when he first got there, he was he thought he was the actor and didn't even want to eat with anybody because he was the big guy. He wanted to eat in his room. Uh, we stayed at Mission Point during those during that show. He wanted his room. He wanted this. He wanted that. And he did that for a couple of days, and then he quickly realized he does not need to play that card, and it's not getting him anything. And he's kind of getting lonely, and he sees all everybody else kind of having fun after we shoot or whatever, or even during the shoot. So he bailed on that, and he ended up just chumming around. Uh, but he observed that, he goes, this is, you run this thing like a foreign set, he said. He used the word foreign, like a, where, he's pers- I guess in, in, in some foreign filmmaking communities, foreign being overseas, um, the, 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 crew is, the crew is made up of equal pieces. Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't see that very much in the United States, he said. I don't see that in Hollywood. The, the director has no idea who the sound department is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know any. He knows the director of photography. But for you, maybe. everyone has a seat at the table. But everybody, and, and we're all equal. The boom guy, the sound boom guy, is just as important as the main actor. And I've heard from, again, the people you've worked with that sometimes when you're filming, if someone has an idea, whether it's an actor or the boom guy, right. you'll change the film in the moment if you think it's a good idea. Yes, that's right. And the challenge, and maybe the, the barn door that I open by being that way, is that... I don't really want a bunch of six of one, half dozen of the other ideas. And I tell people this at the front end of stuff. It's like, it's like you guys, if it's just another way of doing what we're doing, just keep it to yourself. It really doesn't. So you got to self-govern this thing a little bit. But if you have, a, if you have an idea that truly makes sense that we're, we're missing, I mean, we're all, we all have, you can't think of everything. And, uh, but if you got some, if you got a real idea, mention it to me or somebody and, uh, and do it. And, it happens, but I just said just self-govern a little bit because I can't. My brain is not big enough to absorb the puppy endless, to small dog, endless, right? Yeah. I don't like that word puppy. Chatter, you know? Can we say small right. dog instead? Right. Yeah. But well, the, it's funny as you're yeah. talking about for the people who are listening. I really hope that you can draw the parallels between your work environment and this movie set environment that you're talking about because I think a lot of us, if work felt that way, and by all means, what you're doing is work. I think we tend to glamorize because it's a really creative, artistic, if you think about Hollywood, lots of money being thrown around, but you keep on underlying the word independent. But this is this is your career. This is mm-hmm. your profession. This is your craft. And this is the harmony that you seek because at the end of the day, if we're going to invest all this time in something, shouldn't it be fun too? Yeah. You know, it's funny about the work, the work word. Um, working would be, I, I don't know, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, they, tell, they call it artwork and stuff like that. And we all try to make it sound uh, maybe more complicated than it is or has to be. But it's like, for me, the word work, this is more like I would do this for free. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and, and, and actually, I am doing it for free. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> uh, but, a lot of money in a dependent film right. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, but still, <laughs> no. The idea would be that I would bend over backwards to try to accommodate any filmmaker that wants to make their show look more like a movie or something. Because I've got a bunch of gear and a truck and a 
trailers and all this stuff. And I, I've seen you do this before. I've, I've seen new filmmakers reach out to you and you help them. Yeah. Uh, various producers in town. Where, why do you do that? I mean, was someone, was there someone in your life that was kind of a mentor and helped you out when you needed it? Or is it well, just a spirit of you generosity know, that's, you have? That's a really interesting question. And, it, and the answer is yes, there was. And I had just during this high school, uh, period of my life, I made a f- art movie called In Toto. Very deep. You might have, <laughs> might have to look, I might have to Google that and find out what it means. But I think it means something like in uh, all-encompassing or something like that. But In Toto was the name of the movie. And it was this art movie and blah, blah, blah. I ended up winning at the Cranbrook Film Festival oh, that wow. year. And looking at the, I haven't seen that thing in decades, but but I did win. And so it ended up in the Ann Arbor News. There was a little thing that said, hey, local goofball wins Cranbrook or whatever. <laughs> well, at that same time, I had been bugging this filmmaker in Ann Arbor to tag along and just kind of see what I could, if I could, I wanted to do this, you know, and mm-hmm. that this person was really doing that. When that article appeared in the Ann Arbor News, he called me because he'd had my number. I'd been bugging him, but he'd been kind of ignoring <laughs> me. Then he goes, oh, hey, congratulations. I, I see you, you know, you, you're, you're, what, tell me about the movie. And I told him and he said, well, actually, I've got a gig coming up. Uh, we're shooting down in Ohio. And if you want to come along, uh, we can, I'd like to have you maybe come along and you've been bugging me long enough. And, and so he let me go. Yeah. He just needed to know you were serious about it. He knew I was serious. Now we get to the fun part in our interview. You can determine if it's fun for you too. It's fun for Ben and I, uh, we want to talk about just some of the questions that we have for you that you can share some additional wisdom to our listeners here. First question is a major influence on your life that you don't give enough credit to. Maybe it is that filmmaker you were talking about, yeah. John Choate. Well, yeah, I, John Choate was my the guy that uh, embraced me when I was in high school as somebody that was, he noticed that I was serious about this or thereabouts. Um, and so I give him credit. I have a picture of him hanging in my office that I, that I took back in the 70s yeah. of him. And uh, I mean, so he's... He's a remarkable figurehead, and he was, he was everything that I've aspired to be, in a way. I mean, he, was, he put everybody at ease. He, he could get away with anything, almost, and pe- but he did it with a smile. And people would just lo- love him for it. And so I, I think that, John, wherever you are, uh, that was a big deal. And, Gave you uh, a lot of validation, it sounds. Unbelievable. And, uh, and anyway, so, that w- so John showed... Nobody else really knows about him except me. And, and now it's, us. it's in my heart. And now us. What and now you have more listeners. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Rich, it's been great hearing all the parallels between a movie set and, bet- you know, and hearing how that parallels with our lives and how people can use that outside of here. I hear, you know, it's all about casting, which reminds me of that saying in management, you know, hire for attitude, train for skills. There you go. And it sounds very, very similar to what you're doing. But all of us from time to time just get in a funk whether that's because of personal issues or work issues or what have you. What do you do when you're in a funk and how do you snap yourself out of it? (laughs) Um, It's probably not that easy to uh, live around me because I get uh, a little focused. Maybe we all have that problem. Uh, I don't know, but you probably do. By focus, do you (laughs) mean like tunnel vision or just... Yeah, I mean, we get preoccupied with whatever's on the burner at that time. Yeah. My wife 
is shocked that there are times I get focused and forget to eat. She's yeah, that kind like, of thing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right, and uh, so there's, there, you know, that there's a there's a, uh, a forgiveness that has to happen on the home front for that kind of stuff because the I can't change it. I mean, I'm not. I didn't build it. It just came to me. So it's like it just. This is just the way it is. So for me to. Uh, swim like a duck or do a ballet, it's probably not going to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but what I do is what I'm doing, and I've been doing it a long enough now where it kind of fits and it feels good, and I'm confident enough with what I do that um, that's why things don't really bug me that much because I've kind of been through... I mean, we almost crashed a helicopter a couple of years ago, and uh, and I almost I almost ended up in the. Why did they let you drive? I wasn't flying, but it, but they uh, they got hit with a, a downdraft, and we almost went swimming in the uh, Mackinac, the Straits of Mackinac, uh, in October, and it would have been ugly, um, but um, didn't happen. But I was thinking, even then, I was thinking at the time it was like you know, even even in that eight seconds where it was like. This is going to go south. I was, I was in that moment. I was even thinking, you know what? I've had a lot of cool stuff, and this is a lot better than getting killed in a car accident or getting shot in <laughs> Vietnam or whatever. Makes and, for a great obituary. It really oh, does. It would. Yeah. You should <laughs> have gratitude on the way down in the helicopter. In that, that is... eight seconds. Well, that's before I had before I started screaming and I had to change my pants. But um, <laughs> um, so, how do I get out of a funk? Um, I. I I don't. Uh, I don't drink. Uh, I don't smoke. Um, I like to watch Andy Griffith. Mm-hmm. I kind of veg with that kind of stuff, and uh, I just love the outdoors and nature and appreciate all of that. And I don't know. It sounds kind of lame, but no. We were just talking uh, uh, in a previous episode with uh, Joe Sanok about how nature. Is exactly what, okay, you, yeah. what we're kind of hardwired to uh, to get us out of those funks. It just makes yeah. us feel better. Yeah, I, I generally don't get into those for some reason. I'm thankful that I don't have a, a predisposition that way. Um, got so much to be grateful for, and I just, I just I don't know. That's just I don't want to sound like I'm doing anything because I don't deserve that. I just it's just the way it sort of lands. Uh, this very morning, I was watching behind my house. There were deer that I had accidentally kicked up, and they were jumping. And those guys were jumping 20 feet. They, I'm, I'm yelling at them like, you guys don't need to run away. You know, I'm not going <laughs> to. It's not November here. Right? But they, yeah. were, but they were literally jumping 20 feet in the air. And I wish I'd had a camera to capture it because it was like, my God, those guys can go. <laughs> and, uh, but it was that kind of stuff. And when I see things like that happen in nature uh, and these, this whole ecosystem that's out there, as long as we don't screw it up as humans, I, I, I really love it. And it's, it re- makes me comfortable that in space, in the orbit, in our galaxy, we what do we really have to worry about? Sounds <laughs> like you find a really great way to center yourself. And I'm going to switch to the next question. If you could go back in time 10 years ago and give yourself advice, what do you think you'd tell yourself about 10 years ago? Just 10 years ago? Maybe 20. <laughs> I'll give you 30, 40. Take um, a timeline. What, would you, what advice would you give your younger self? Wow. Uh, you know, um, well, the, I guess the advice I would give, and it's the same advice I give to people today that are interested in pursuing something different even, but in my case, filmmaking is that if you, you got to quit talking about it, you got to just start doing whatever it is you need to do in small, cheap, 
ways. And if, if you want to start writing, if you want to start getting into filmmaking, there's now, there's like no reason you shouldn't get into filmmaking. I mean, there's cameras are cheap. Digital editing is simple. Um, just start working. I tell this to students all the time is that you can, you can talk about it. You can watch all the behind the scenes that you want and you can believe that you can do this stuff, but not until you actually jump into the doing it world, will anybody else or will you even believe that you can do it? Um, it's not as easy as it looks. And if it's, if you find out that it's not a good route, whether it's filmmaking or whatever, that you at least find that out just try rather it, than right? just keep talking about it. I love that phrase, get caught trying. That is Get fair. caught yeah. trying to pursue get, your dreams, yeah. right? Just yeah, there you go. So yeah. I, I guess that would be the advice, and it's advice that I actually give people today is just do it. Just quit calling me. Call me. I had a guy come in with a screenplay that was 290 pages long. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It sounds um, like a book. Yeah, and the yeah. average screenplay is what, 60 pages? Well, 100. But 100, yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, but 290 pages. And I read this, or I looked at this, and it's like, it like a three-inch, two-inch phone book or something kind of thing. And I go, look, man, here's the thing. I'm going to be your best friend for a second. First of all, if I don't read this thing, nobody's going to read this thing because I'm, like, interested in this stuff. But I'm not even going to read this thing because I can tell you right now there's twice as many characters in this thing that there should be, and it's three times too long. So when you, I'm encouraging you to go back and and rake through it and make it great in a hundred pages. And when you do that, I pledge to you I will read this thing and I will I will I will really look at this thing. And he looked at me like, well, I can't possibly do that because it's 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 too complicated of a story. It needs all this stuff. And I realized then that this guy has no chance <laughs> in becoming a writer because you have to learn to, what they refer to it as kill your babies. But it's like, it's a difficult thing. And when new writers delete a whole bunch of pages because they really didn't go anywhere and they do it with a clean conscience, blink, there they go. Okay, now we're going to start fresh. And then what comes and follows is better. Mm-hmm. And until you get to the point where you can start destroying some of your work for the good of the common project until you can actually do that you're not a writer or even a filmmaker it's you gotta painful. know you, you gotta know to throw stuff out i right. did that when i was writing bet on you just sitting there for two days working on a chapter and then just realizing this is trash yeah. <laughs> delete oh delete kill your children yeah. it's yes. terrible yeah, then you got another oh, but yeah. you need but you need those moments yeah to to to, to refocus to know what will work to know what will work. That's right. If you didn't right. have a bad, it's kind of like focusing a camera. You have to see, you have to go past focus. It has to go out of focus and then you bring it back into focus. I like that phrase. Well, if you're just in focus all the time and it's a little bit soft because you just didn't go to that exercise. You won't see it. You won't see it. Has anyone ever given you a piece of advice that was just a game changer for you? It would be uh, John Choate. It'd be back then. And uh, I was very, initially, it sounds odd, but I was very too polite about getting into somebody's face with a camera. I, you know, like if I did an interview, I'd be like, I don't want to get in his space. I want to be polite. I want to get back over here. And I don't want to be too aggressive. And uh, John goes, really? 
get your ass in there and get the shot. Nobody cares. Nobody's, you're not going to hurt anybody's feelings. You're gonna hurt, <laughs> and he says, you're going to hurt their feelings when they see this shot that you set up that's too far away. This is great. I, I had, love that. Yeah, yeah I was just saying, I had a, uh, an acting teacher once who always said, risk being as good as you can be, who oh, was just good. like, you know, so many actors, I'm sure you've run into this, they don't prepare for an audition 100%, because right. that always gives them an excuse. Like, well, you know, I wasn't memorized. I guess yeah, that's, yeah. you know, I could have done this, I could have done that. They always said, just risk doing your best. Yeah. And, and you just used the word could have. That's the big nemesis word. It's that old thing, could have, should have thing. And it's like that prop. Here's the three words that drive me nuts. Could have, should have, and retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Last question, Rich. Um, I would love to hear from you. A book that you read that inspired you. Um, recently, there's a great book called Kingdom of Ice, and it, it's uh, about the journey of the, Gen the uh, Jeanette in 1880 up to the North Pole, which oh, wow. at the time was theoretically conceived to be a, an open ocean. That's where everybody thought was up at the North Pole, was an open ocean. As opposed to Santa Claus's workshop. Yeah. yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, Ben. Well, that was on a pontoon boat. Oh, okay, okay. Um, they, like Cornelius and yeah. Rudolph, yeah, yeah and the bubble. Exactly. Okay, gotcha. So, again, this is a group of people, a couple, bunch of guys, 33 of them, that charged in this heavily reinforced steamer up to the North Pole, and they get stuck in the ice as they knew they would. That <laughs> is incredible. Well, friends, as we wrap up this Bet on You radio, I think <laughs> the point of this conversation, really, Rich, thank you for coming here, was just to stay curious, stay interested, <laughs> yeah. stay inspired. And you gave us so much to just keep our lives enriched. So thank you for your time today. Well, thanks for letting me chatter. Story. I appreciate it. Oh, my gosh, it's wonderful. <laughs> Anytime, my friend. And, <laughs> yes. And nobody else seems to ever ask me questions like this, so I appreciate you guys. Ben. That was amazing talking to Rich. I wish he would have stayed here for five hours because I had so many more questions. I don't even think I got to the top five questions that I have for oh him. Oh my, but and he what? has so many stories that he just, you know he could keep going on and they would all be great and all be engaging because he loves storytelling. So what do you take away? Like, you know, Rich, this is my first time meeting. What did you learn about this experience? With you know, Rich? it just really re-emphasized to me the importance about who we choose to have on our team. You know, he said the majority of his job is all about casting. You know, you hire for attitude, train for skill. And it also made me think of that kind of saying, you know, you are a direct reflection of the top five people you spend time around. So whoever, you know, those five people are, they're going to have the biggest impact on who you are. So you have to choose them very, very carefully. So it's kind of like casting our own movie. And so it just kind of made me reevaluate, like, well, who am I casting in my life? Who am I casting in my work life? Are they who... I want to be reflecting. I hope I am. You are. You absolutely are. Did I are. make yes. the team? Did I get the part? <laughs> Unfortunately, I won't be here next week, but it's going to be... A, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know what's funny? Like, what I really love about what he said right up front, the thing that I t I'm taking away from this is, like, I, I am a craftsman. This is my profession of choice. And that to be a good partner in film creation, you have to be somewhat likable. You know, and if you can do those things, like if you can be expert in your work and you can be the person that just gets along with people, you don't have to beg to work with people. People no. want to work with you. Right? It's really that simple. And I think that that is, to me, just the lesson that I think we overcomplicate sometimes the formula of success when really it's just like do your job 
and be a nice person. It's, it's really it. that simple. <laughs> so, well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Bet on You Radio. I'm Angie Morgan Wachowski. I'm so happy I made the role as a starring guest in your show, Ben Whiting. Oh, our show. Our show. <laughs> our show. <laughs> We're here for you, and we thank you for tuning in. Take care.